This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Mustad. Mustad is a family of companies and leading brands that are rich in heritage and tradition, servicing farriers and horse owners around the globe since 1832. At Delta Mustad Hoof Care Center, we take great pride in our vast offering of farrier supplies and our commitment to serve farriers with product research, educational clinics, sponsorships, and a school program. We are the hoof care people, and we're in the business of helping you, the farrier, and your customer, the horse. Visit us at mustad.com to learn more about Mustad products and locate a supplier near you. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. I like to start every podcast episode by finding out about how a farrier became interested in horses and farriery. Growing up with horses or having a family member who shot horses are logical and somewhat common pathways, but they aren't true for everyone. There are some fascinating ways that some folks have found their way to becoming a farrier. Sometimes it is through luck, and that luck leads to excelling in the profession and a lifelong commitment to working with horses. One story I've always liked is from Steve Krause. He has a great perspective on the industry and has worked in it for several decades. Besides the story of becoming a horseshoer and working as a farrier, Steve has insight to share from having been a supply shop owner, being a clinician, and working at Cornell University. Together these make for an interesting story, and I'll let Steve tell it as we jump into him talking about his early life with horses. So I'll I'll actually start um, from the Bronx. We actually jet out a few hour drive to Long Island. And my grandparents had a summer home on the North Shore. We used to spend the summers out there. My father and my grandfather worked in New York City. And my mother and my grandmother were, you know, with me out, you know, in the, in the cottage um, just off the beach. And I really loved it. I, I didn't like the city that much. And, um, and so my father had come out on the weekend. And about the time I was six years old, um, we in town little town of Rocky Point, there was a, a, a riding stable, a hack stable, boarding stable that you'd pass by, and there was a corral out front, and um, it said pony rides, 25 cents. I mean, we're going back a ways here. <laughs> and because I was interested in horses, why, I don't know. Maybe it came from, you know, watching the, 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 uh, the Westerns on TV back then, and there was a bunch of good old Westerns and I really thought riding a horse would be a cool thing, so I wanted to go get a pony ride, and I liked it. So every weekend, that was a thing my father could do with me. And then, as I, uh, and he actually rode when he was younger and hadn't ridden in a long time. So as I got a little bit older, uh, it was still in, a, in an era where you can actually rent a horse and go out by yourself. And he, he we decided he was going to take me riding on a you know a real horse, you know small horse. And so he rented uh, a horse for himself and one for me. And we went trail riding, you know, and that was like my big thing. Boy, I loved it. I wanted to go, um, you know, trail riding every weekend when we when it came out. And so that's went on for a couple summers or so. And then by the time I was about 10, my mother went back to work and we couldn't spend the summers out in Rocky Point. So we, um, we were looking, trying to decide, you know, how to keep little Stevie from becoming, um, you know, a drug dealer in the streets of the Bronx. 
And, you know, being unsupervised, you know, at that age was not a good thing. And all my friends were, you know, in the same boat. They all were looking at summer camps. And being that, I had heard that there were summer camps that had horses and horsemanship. That's what we started looking for. And it just so happened a distant cousin of mine was going to a place that featured this. And they showed me some films and of it and, and pictures. And I said, I guess I'd go there. And then all, that's how it all started. So I went there and immediately I, I, it was, I was in the element that I wanted to be because it was not only just a place that had horses, but it's really everything about the place, you know, worked around the horses. And the first real goal in my life was to um, be in this group of boys when you're 13, if you um, pass a competitive riding, you know, skills test and to live in a mixed age group of boys of 13 to 16, um, you get your own horse for the summer. So there I was, you know, this was a goal that I was going to get my own horse for the summer. I was going to develop the skills and, and be able to do that. So every summer I went back there and, you know, I lived the 10 months of the year, you know, for those two months there. And of course that came to pass. And I, you know, was in this special group of, of campers we call them horsemen and horsewomen, and that you had your own horse for the summer and you got extra riding privileges. And we went on uh, trail rides and overnight trail rides and, and all kinds of ring instruction, and we played all kinds of games in the ring. We wrote English, we wrote Western, and they taught you about horses. And we even played a little polo later on. But anyway, um, I saw a horse being shod, being in the stable area, and I was hooked. I thought this was fascinating. This was something to be a well-rounded horseman. I should learn how to do this. So the owner's oldest son, who was three years older than me, was also really into the horses. And um, his father hired a guy to work in the stable area to teach um, this fellow, his name is Chris, how to shoe. And I decided I was going to be part of that because I was just fascinated with it. And um, so being in the stable area and, and, and working with the horses, you know, I gravitated to this and I became like a helper at 14 years old. And, you know, we were going to do this. And so for the next two summers, we had this uh, guy who was a, a basic shoer that, you know, it was kind of a cowboy type shoeing. We didn't have a lot of good tools. We didn't have a lot of good shoes. We just had to get the job done. And, and so each summer I'd go back and work with the horses. And as I got older, I was asked to be part of the riding staff. And uh, my friend Chris was actually being groomed to take over the whole riding operation. And uh, I was his right-hand man. And so there we were every summer, chewing these horses, running the riding program, doing all this stuff. And I just loved it. And by the time... Um, I was going to college. I was, you know, running the place and um, doing all the shoeing on my own because uh, Chris graduated and had to get a real job. So um, there I was, you know, and that was how I got started. I had to keep 30 horses shod. A lot of them were these horses they bought at auction that maybe were saddle broke, but not too well um, broke to shoe. And I had no idea what I was doing with that, but I found ways to tough it out. I tied up legs. I did things I saw in books, and I might even be arrested for some of the things <laughs> I did back then. Um, but my job was to get keep the horses done. 
And so that's kind of how it, you know, it just evolved that way. So when I came to Cornell, uh, I transferred in as a junior. I'd been shooting over the summers for several years uh, now or four or five years. And I said, gee, I guess I could shoot good enough to shoot some horses, uh, you know, around the area, around Ithaca. And I stumbled into the farrier shop at Cornell thinking I was actually pretty hot stuff. And then I met Harold Mowers, and immediately I knew there was so much more to learn. And so that's, that was the early days. Yeah, and uh, uh, did you necessarily see yourself becoming a horseshoer at that point? You know, um, I was in college for a reason. Um, I had thought about going to veterinary school. I had thought about a few other things. And in beef cattle management that I was interested in. And, but I think deep down inside, there was this part of me that the more I spent time around Harold, and then I eventually met Doug Butler in that same time frame, and a few other people, Buster Conklin, I think there was part of me that was like, you know, destined to be a horseshoe or a farrier. And I just like denied it because I was in college to do other stuff. But the more I did shoeing-wise around the area, the more I picked Harold Brains, Harold Brains, and the more I, um, Harold sent me a lot of work, including a lot of standard bread work, which he was a really top guy at that. And there was standard bread training nearby. And um, so uh, I was coming in and out of the farrier shop, which I now teach in, and, um, you know, just uh, just gaining knowledge from Harold and, uh, and just being able to practice it and talk to him about it and and see all this stuff. And so I just sort of like got drawn into it. it was, I, I think it was out of, basically it was out of my control, even though I did not um, accept it for a little while. When I graduated Cornell, I didn't go to veterinary college, and I turned down some um, some offers that I had in the beef business that uh, I could have gone to because I decided at one point I am going to shoe horses for a living, and that's that. That was 1971. Yeah, and you had mentioned some names. That was one of the things I wanted to ask about, and I know it wouldn't do it justice for you to talk about the history of Cornell in a short amount of time, but can you talk about some of those those big names? I don't know if everybody listening would be familiar with the tremendous farrier history that Cornell has? Well, I'm, you know, at, the, at this point, I am, you know, this over a hundred year program and I'm the sixth barrier in a hundred years to, to uh, be in this program. And of course it started with Henry Asmus. He was, you know, the first professor of horseshoeing there and got the program going. And then uh, he was there for quite a while, and then he died suddenly. And then Gene Layton, who was actually the farrier for the ag school at Cornell, uh, took over. And, and, you know, Cornell had a huge draft horse herd uh, where they actually farmed with back in the, um, you know, 20s and 30s. And so Gene moved right into the veterinary school farrier, resident farrier position when, and when, um, Henry Asmus passed away, and uh, and then as he was approaching retirement, they recruited Harold Mowers, 
So I actually briefly knew Gene because he would he was hanging in and out of there when I was a student. I got there in 1968, and then uh, but Harold was a big influence on me. And again, that was one of these things like right from the start. And then the first time I walked in there and 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 met Harold and and realized there was so much more to learn, you know, than I had done. Um, Harold just was a tremendous influence. Harold has taught me how to think about horses and how they move and how they're put together and what happens when they're not put together right. And, and because he was a standard bread chewer and he, I, I used to call him the wizard, you know, of the burning downs. And he, he really, you know, he was the problem solver. And, uh, so I got a lot of that out of Harold. Just, I think a lot of it just, I absorbed because I would hang out up there and, you know, meet his students, of course. And after a while, Harold was sending his students out with me for some practical experience. But I would just, you know, anytime I had free time, instead of going to the library, I probably, um, where I should have been, I was uh, <laughs> running up to the shop up there and watching what was going on with Harold. And so, of course, as part of that, Buster Conklin, um, early on, I met Buster. And it was really funny because Buster was kind of a local legend. He, he lived just south of here, but he shot horses all over the place around here. And every now and then I would see... Um, some horse that Buster shot, and I was really impressed with what I saw. And, um, you know, obviously this guy knew what he was doing. Buster was doing a lot of forge work on the shoes, which at the time was rare. All you had was diamond Bronco shoes and leftover long-heeled Phoenix shoes. And Buster really worked the shoes a lot. So you'd see what he did, and I'm going, well, that's the way it should be done. You know, boy, he really put a real, put some expression into these shoes, not just nail them on. And, of course, Buster was, you know, very popular. He was a big guy. Um, I kept on hearing Buster, 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 and I kept on getting a couple of his horses here and there to shoe that he couldn't get to. And I said, I don't know. This, I hear about this guy. He might, you know, break my head or something from <laughs> getting at some of his horses. And uh, I, we had a little horseshoe meeting that Harold uh, and, and Buster kind of arranged together, and I and, – and, Buster walks right over to me in that meeting, shakes out his hand, and Buster was big back then. I mean, he was a cross between Arnold Schwarzenegger and John Wayne, if you could imagine that. And um, he extends his hand and says, hey, I've seen some of your work, and you're not doing too bad, and um, why don't you come in and, and ride with me sometime? Just like that. First time I met him. And we were friends ever since. Being around Buster and then Harold, and of course when Butler was there, because he grew up in Ithaca, and uh, he was there until he left for Missouri, which I think was 1977, maybe. So he was there for you know six or seven years on and off, and he helped me every now and then. I had some horses um, around the area that uh, I was having trouble with, and he'd come out and ride with me and and um, help me, you know, with some of these horses too. So I had this unbelievable opportunity to meet people like Buster and, and Harold and, and, and Doug Butler and and, and then uh, another name that you may not know and most of the listeners won't know, but I have to mention is Doug Picorni, who died about eight or nine years ago. But Doug was several years older than me, and when I came into the area, he's sort of like uh, he'd been chewing for four or five years and. He just was one of these guys. He just said, "Hey, you're a kid, and you need some somebody to look after you." And and we became. He was a lifelong friend of mine, 
And um, he was a very good gated horseshoer as well as about anything. And, uh, you know, again, we were friends through thick and thin. So having that kind of friendship and support with these kind of people, just, you know, how could I go wrong? How could I not want to shoe horses? It sounds like a very unique situation. Not only, I think there was a, a, a common complaint that, that I often hear from shoers of a certain age that, that it wasn't as a uh, closely knit industry or uh, uh, free with its education as it is today. But not only that, but the, the level of guys that were, were helping you. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. As I say, I, I have, I'm blessed. I have these great opportunities, these great friends. All of, you know, um, named uh, three, three out of the four are gone now that I really miss. And, um, but, you know, these were guys that were lifelong friends. And, they, and you know, Buster and, and Harold uh, really fostered this, this, this togetherness type thing, this brotherhood, this, um, you know, we're not competitors. We're, we, we may differ on some things that we are good at or like to see, but, you know, we all recognize each other's abilities, and we were all always friends. There was never any problem with um, competitiveness or jealousy or anything like that. And the same with Dustin Corny. Um, you know, we, we, we liked each other for what each of us were. And, uh, that was, I, and, and I think Harold really fostered that. Uh, you had mentioned about how Harold really taught you about how horses were put together. Can you identify anything else? I, I, I'm sure there's there's so many lessons, but was there any particular lesson you'd care to share that from any of those gentlemen that you you learned there in that time that had a a huge impact on your career? Well, you know, Har- I would watch Harold. Harold would get to talk to the veterinary students, and he'd always tell me when that was going to happen. I, I try and you know come to those lectures like as I could, and you know. <laughs> I'd watch Harold talk about how horses move and how, you know, how their conformation may differ and so on. And, and Harold was great. He would jump right up on the deck in the lecture hall and, and start with his hands and his legs, you know, trying to move like the horse that he was describing. And, uh, so you know, it was, he was very animated. He was very, you know, very, he really knew how to work a crowd. Let's put it that way. And so you could really see it wasn't just a, a um, you know, a dry lecture. Here's how a horse is put together. So I try to emulate that with the lectures I do now. You know, you know, a little bit of my style that is, as you know, has come from Harold. Because I, I, I always saw how well he engaged, you know, who he was talking to. And, and certainly, you know, all the different types of horses that, you know, you do that come in problems and we you know cornell university veterinary college is certainly a concentration point for horses with problems so we get to see the worst of the worst and i think if you just see a lot of that stuff regularly you just start absorbing um you know the the uh problem solving solutions Mm -hmm. i guess that's a, a good way to think about it you just see enough of it you say there, there is a way, there is a, a solution to this puzzle. You have confidence that it can be done. And l- let's go back now. You're, you're out of Cornell and you're, you're practi- a practicing farrier. What was your practice like in, until you came back to Cornell? Well, it definitely changed to some degree. But, you know, I'm still 
you know, I still shoot a few horses on the outside, uh, very little uh, at this point because I don't have any time, and I just can't get away from, you know, driving around in a truck with an amble behind my head. But um, uh, I still have some clients that I've done for all this length of time that I, that I, you know, these people have become friends and feel very confident with me and they still have horses. And um, so imagine that I've been shooting for some people for 40 to 50 years now. And um, early on around Ithaca, the horses that were available to me were not the best horses. There wasn't a lot of nice horses to begin with. And, you know, Buster was doing them and um, uh, there wasn't too many other horseshoers around and there wasn't too many indoor arenas like there are now. Uh, you know, Doug had some nicer places. Doug, Doug Picorni had some places. And there's a few other guys around, shooting around. And um, uh, so a lot of my horses were just backyard horses. And a lot of them, uh, I was the first one to ever put shoes on them. So you can imagine that they were usually bought at a sale. They were, you know, shipped in from the West. Maybe they were saddle broke, but they were not broke to be shod. And so I was shooing these horses that, you know, didn't want to get done. And I got the reputation for being able to do these horses. And the reward for that was I got more of them to do. And so I was known as the guy to get when no one else could shoe the horse, which, you know, when you're young, you just do stuff like that. And then you look back on it and you go like, why did I do this this way? But that was what I needed to do to make a living. And that's what I did. And as time went on, I think a combination of things helped me. Um, everybody knew I was dependable and everybody, uh, people would, uh, you know, there was a lot more good horsemen around. They would, um, frequently I'd be told that, um, I really know how to put a foot under a horse's leg. And I didn't really understand what that meant early on, but I knew I was doing it. I didn't know how I was doing it, but people were liking what I did. It was more like intuitive. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really taught. And um, as time has gone on, I figured out actually what, you know, that really meant. But, you know, one of my first early big clients actually turned out to be the athletic department for Cornell University. And that was another fluke thing. They have a riding program there. They have a polo team and a physical ed riding program. So if you're at Cornell University and want to take physical education, there's um, uh, several levels of of riding that you could take, you know, like from a beginner, you've never ridden a horse before to, you know, intermediate and advanced. So they have this beautiful indoor arena where the, you know, those horses are. And I walked in uh, to the place looking for work in my first year at Cornell and the director of the place, I met him. He's a really great guy. Good. He became a really great friend. His name was Charles Lent. And, um, uh, I said, I'm looking for work, and I can either shoe horses or teach riding. Which do you need? And he said, you know, uh, we don't have a regular farrier on these uh, lesson horses, and the farrier students and the vet students are supposed to come down here and work on them for practice, and they never show up. And um, I'm probably good that they don't, because they don't do a good job anyway. So uh, I'm going to go to the athletic department people and find out if I could hire you, which he did. And so the first horses I was doing, as when I was a, a you know a, a, an ag student at Cornell, I got the um, phys ed riding lesson horses to do, and that was a pretty big bunch bunch of horses. And 
So that was a big client, actually, that started to keep me pretty busy. And so um, the polo team was right there, and I wanted to play polo because I had dabbled with it. And um, one of the polo coaches was a, a part-time horseshoer, and he was doing all those horses, and they didn't have as many as they have now. And because they had some financial problems, he was actually doing those horses for free. And so there I am getting paid to shoe the lesson horses. And then I saw him, you know, trying to keep up. I said, I'll give you a hand. And so I basically was shooing, helping him do the polo horses, you know, on the cuff. And uh, because I wanted to get involved with polo, too. And uh, I couldn't play on the Cornell team then because I was a junior. And uh, they wanted to train you for, you know, have you for four years. And your eligibility would be up because I'd been to college already. And, but I had some of my own horses at the time. And this friend of mine, who, Derek, who, Derek Turlow, who was um, the coach there, said, we play outdoor polo during the summer and we'll get you going outdoors. So that's, that's where I got into polo, just by trying to help them with the shoeing. And so as time went on, um, I was really a Cornell vendor. I had insurance to be proper. And then the equestrian team came on many years later. And of course, I picked them up as part of it. So just that connection just grew really well for me. And then, of course, my business around, I was covering horses in six counties around Ithaca, all types of horses. So that's how it, it just grew like crazy. I'm glad you brought up the polo riding you've done and, and much more broad beyond that, still competing, refereeing, and it's been a uh, pursued ever since you you were at Cornell, the first go round over the years of of both learning it as a rider and and being a farrier. What are some keys to, for farriers who don't work with polo horses? What are some keys for keeping those horses sound? Well, a lot. I, I think a lot of the big thing with keeping any athletic horse sound, but certainly a polo horse, is to select the right horse in the first place, and and. One of the things that has served me really well, and, and I still talk about this when I talk about my, the main lecture I, 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 that people ask me to give is how confirmation affects soundness and performance. And early on, uh, as a rider and shooing the horses that I, ride, I was riding, I really did notice there was a difference that I could feel as a rider between how the horse, the hook distortion the horse had, how his leg felt, you know, flexed and so on, what, you know, how he was put together and, and how the horse felt underneath me and how athletic the horse was. There was really definitely a connection there that was started early on in my you know, career during the summers. Um, I knew there was differences. I just didn't know how to describe them at the time. And, uh, you know, as time went on, we met Harold and that, you know, started fitting in. But another really important person that came in to me um, in that respect was Dr. Marvin Beeman, because he was asked to um, put on a lecture about confirmation and soundness at Cornell. And actually, Doug Butler called me up and told me to come to this lecture, that you'll want to hear this, he said. And Beeman was the first one that really talked more about it, and, and a little bit different than Harold did, but really knocked the point into my head of how this affects the horse. And um, I became a real student of that because of Marvin Beeman and, and Harold, of course, too. The two of them together, you know, just 
got those points going into me, my head, and um, uh, really, you know, became, you know, really, that's how you have to shoot horses. You have to understand confirmation. So as a rider, I'm only going to select horses that have the right confirmation to do the job right, because I don't like to ride horses that are poorly put together because they're uncomfortable. <laughs> and they cause problems chewing, and they don't stay sound. So you really start to learn how all that affects. So, you know, when it comes to the polo horses, the, sh the shoeing, we get a lot of donations at Cornell. In fact, the whole polo team, you know, we have all together over 50 head of horses uh, in the Cornell polo program at any given time. And they're all, they're all donated from our connections and um, all levels of polo from, you know, fairly low level to, you know, polo like that's played in Florida. And they're not donating their best horses. They're trying to just get rid of things that aren't working well or horses that are past their prime. And if you look at, and most of these really good horses that come in are built very similarly, and they're built for athleticism and soundness. And when they have a donation that's not built so well, that was the, the learning part for me to be able to fool around with these horses and, and see if I could make them useful. And um, it was sort of they, those Cornell Polo horses and the Lesson horses, too, is what was like my living laboratory, that I could go in there and try things without a nervous owner wondering what I was doing and, um, you know, try and do something to make these horses useful for the Polo Club. And um, it worked. So I had a lot of, you know, ways to experiment on those horses and, and, and deal with the problems that they had. When, when you talk about experimenting, you know, what, what were the things that you were trying to learn and, or, you know, was it uh, mainly seeing a cause and effect with, with the trim or the shoeing? Definitely cause and effect stuff. And one of the things um, you would see, obviously if horses that have, confirmation problems or, you know, deviations that are kind of um, not helping this horse, um, you would look at, you know, you could spend a little time looking at this and looking at the hoof distortion and, you know, really thinking this thing out, like, what can I do to help this leg land a little bit better and load a little bit better? And so, you know, I, I could play around with these horses that way. You should be doing that with all your problem horses. You shouldn't just walk up and just slap some shoes on, but I know that gets done a lot. But but then I'm also able to ride these horses or see them ridden. And I think there's a lot of horse shoers out there that never see their their um, owners ride, ride the horses that they shoot. And I think they're, um, that's not a good thing. And so I was very closely involved with these horses. So I get the whole picture, not just, you know, one end of the horse. Um, and then the other thing I was able to do with these horses is uh, try something out of the box just to see if it would work or would this make this horse any better. And if it didn't work, it, I, it's not like uh, I have a, a, an owner that's annoyed with me. You know what I'm saying? Right. So uh, I could do things on these horses uh, like for my own horses. And when I actually would do that with my own horses too at times. So, you know, there was more, you know, if you, if you have lots of horses like that at your disposal that come with various problems, you know, you can't, you know, 
it's not a matter of just keeping them shod. It's like keeping them shod so that they're really functional and last. And the other thing I would see is, uh, especially out of some of the polo places, uh, the horses would come in um, and they have a story with them, you know, why they're donating them and, and what the problems may be. And quite often, the shoeing was so generic on these horses that it really wasn't working for them. So the horse is underperforming partially because of the poor shoeing that was done. It was not, the horse is not shod for his confirmation. Quite often the shoes are too small. The, 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 the feeder, the, the hooves have been trimmed from the quarter to the quarter. There's a, a problem in some of the polo world where they think leaving a heel long uh, gives the horse a, a better angle, but it's usually underrun, short, so the horse is not heel loading very well. So some of the things that I was able to recognize and learn from and then do things and then see the results immediately on how well the horse is going. So that was really helpful. You know, just, you know, dealing with, you know, things that weren't right and trying to find ways to make them right. That makes sense? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, you talked about kind of that intuition you had about understanding confirmation and how a horse is put together and then how helpful it was to have, have mentors like Harold increase that knowledge you know can you identify the lessons or or the way you work with horses that that others could maybe understand or adapt that really helped turn on that light bulb about understanding the effect of confirmation well i think you know that goes down to um looking at the anatomy a little bit closer and you know understanding how the leg works and that's something that you know takes a little time you know, you can see it, you know, anybody could look in a book on, you know, a, a chart of the anatomy of the, elect, of the leg. And when you look at how, where tendons and ligaments attach, you know, it, you know, originate and insert, and with bones they attach, and how all this works together, um, and actually how what we call how the mechanics of the leg works. And that, again, that was something that I was able to, you know, see with Harold, and uh, certainly with Doug Butler, too, um, that, you know, better understanding of why certain things are important. And um, as time went on, I started trying to, to quantify what I was doing that was right, which is really hard. It's, you know, trimming clubs is like a, a sculpture. And so you're trying to be an artist. But it's really, when it comes down to it, it's this combination of physics because of, um, uh, you know, understanding, uh, you know, how the leg loads and unloads and its geometry of what the base needs to be for that load. So instead of being, yes, we think of it as an art, but it's also the science of, of geometry and physics, how all this works. You can start thinking about it that way. And then as time has gone on, some really good articles that would explain Craig Turnka had one year ago about, you know, using the, the, the golden ratio for the bottom of the foot, and, and certainly Mark Caldwell uh, had some ducket style, you know, all that stuff comes together. And I think of it now as, um, as I checked the way I was trimming, it all fit into all this stuff. And so now all of a sudden these guys are writing me about these things and about landmarks on the foot and geometric balance and all stuff. 
And everything I was doing fit right into that. And when I give uh, some of these clinics for Mustad, and if there's a live horse there, I usually can go and make some marks on, on the foot and the ground, and I put some lines out. You remember when you were in the shop that day when I yes. put those lines on the ground with that horse and I explained some of this to you? When I do that at, at, a, at a, uh, a clinic, that's one of the things I really want to do um, and, and show this stuff. And I have guys that have been shooting horses successfully for 20 years coming up to me, and this has happened many times, saying to me, thank you. I trim feet the same way you do, but I never understood why I do it that way. Now it makes sense, which is that's amazing that we're all on the same page. You know, so this geometric balance is, is pretty important. And we've been able to uh, finally, you know, over the years, we've been able to come up with ways to quantify it. And what works for me is if I have a, a new horse coming into the, uh, the hospital uh, that's coming in for lameness exam or neurological exam or, you know, a combination of that, there's a problem with the horse, he's underperforming, he's stumbling, uh, the rider's not happy, he's not dead lame, but he's not really sound either. And just like that day when you're in the shop and I drew those lines on the ground, and then after we trim the feet and those lines change, and then we shoe the horse, um, and then the horse goes better. So now we have all the pieces. We, we have a documented way of before, not just a, an opinion. We have a documented way after that the client can see, the students can see the lines change on the balance of the foot. And then we watch the horse go, and the horse is definitely moving better. And even you know, two weeks later, the client calls up and goes, my God, my horse is going so well. He's never gone so well. It feels so good, uh, or I did really well at a horse show or whatever. So the students see all that. The students see that it's not just Steve trimming a foot his special way. They see what that special way is. They see the reaction of the client. They see the horse going well. So it all connects for the students and the client. So that's the part I like. That's, that's what's real cool. And it's repeatable. And what we can't fix with our trim, we can fix, you know, we can work with the shoe. We can ex extend the heel. We can roll a toe or do any of these modifications to enhance our trimming so the students see, okay, that's what the modifications are for. So that's how I think all this really fits together in a logical, quantifiable way. Quantifiable logic, and, and it, it follows in a sequence, I think, in understanding, and that helps articulate it to the student, to the owner, and, and to people who maybe have been doing it for quite some time, like you mentioned, but right, just right. can never put, put it into words or, or right, quantify Right, right, and state. it's repeatable. That's the part I like. It's repeatable. Yeah. And, and, and you, anybody can do it. One thing I think worth bringing up, you know, you mentioned work Caldwell and, and Duckett, and uh, we always have mnemonics and things that help us remember things or apply things, and, and you have a clever one I've always liked. Uh, the width protocol. Can you talk about that quickly? Yeah, that was uh, interesting. That kind of came to me. That's one of those things that just like um, one night, it just like that lightning bolt that comes out of the sky and hits you in the head. Because we're in at a point in time, been involved with you know the controversial the barefoot movement, and I you know early on I went to the the, the Strasser clinic at Tufts. 
um, to, I went there really, um, the people in Mutsat asked me to go because they wanted somebody on the ground, basically, what, what is all this phenomenon about? You know, give us an analysis. And so I went to Tufts when she came here and, 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 and part of as a consultant Mutsat, they just wanted me to pay attention to what's going on, read up on this, you know, is this going to change the industry or, you know, is it going to affect how we sell nails? That was the deal. So I had to go and, and, and look into this stuff. And it's a it very, it's a, it became so apparent that it, there's so much emotional stuff involved with it. And even at the Tufts Clinic, I said to Kurt Karka, who was the president of the AFA at the time, and I said, you know, listening to these people that the reason why they're here is because they can't find a good horseshoer and they've had problems with horseshoes. And if you or I shod for them, they wouldn't even be here because we know how to shoe a horse right. And so obviously the industry is failing these people. And that's why there's, you know, a push to, you know, in some respects towards, you know, being shoeless. And so this has become kind of an emotional, you know, thing for a lot of these people. And then, so I started thinking of just ways to deal with it. And I go in a logical basis, I try to be logical. Um, there's reasons why you need to shoe a horse. And certainly, you know, the work of the horse really is going to dictate. And then how intense that work is. And that was the eye, you know, intensity. And certainly the distance the horse goes that's another one, and, and certainly terrain is a big, you know, deal. So, you know, I'm going like W-I-E, and, you know, it's, it's sort of like came together. And then, of course, the H is the individual horse, because we're individuals. Horses are individuals. And so as I looked at this stuff, I, you know, I had actually to write it down on a piece of paper to really wrap my head around what I just did. And, um, and then I wrote it down and, it, you know, they came into this acronym, this WIP, work, intensity, duration, terrain, and, into, and horse. And then I expanded on it, of course, and I wrote that article for you guys. And then I did the talk on it. But, you know, the year before I did the talk, I don't know if you had heard, um, you know, Daisy Bicking was doing a roundtable about barefoot hoof management. And I like Daisy, and I, I went in there to the roundtable and there was a, you know, Daisy attracts a lot of people who, who are either going to be shoeless or, or use composites and glue and so on. And a, a lot of horseshoers came in to that. I don't know if they were just looking to heckle or, you know, they wanted to hear stuff. And so we had over a hundred people or more in the room. And, you know, it, Daisy started off as the moderator at the round table. And it quickly got out of hand. It, it got out of control. And there was all of a sudden yelling going on back and forth. And some of the horseshoers got up and started approaching. You know, there were people standing up and screaming. And, and, and Daisy looked at me and, and, and like, you know, it, I, what happened? You know, and I said to Daisy, I got something that let's get logical here. So Daisy, Daisy whistled and waved her hand and said, um, please be quiet. Uh, Steve Krause has something to say. And so the room quieted down, and I did the whip protocol. 
I just really quickly ran through it and people were listening. And then, um, some guy, and I don't know who it was, says, could you say that a little bit slower so I could write it down? And I said, okay, and I'll elaborate just a little bit. The room is dead quiet now. And so as I'm right, you know, going through the whip thing again, I looked up, and I think almost everybody in the room was writing. I couldn't believe it. I was completely flabbergasted that they all of a sudden this calmed the you know the troubled waters. So I was very uh, gratified at the time when that happened because it obviously made sense to other people. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, so, yeah, I was very um, just I was just completely blown away by that. You know, going back to what you said before, you know, it's uh, what you had said to Craig about access to to quality farriers. Do you still see that as the main reason uh, that the current iteration of of barefoot uh, theories or movements exist, or or what do you see as you know? I'm sh- there's a lot of different reasons, but do you see an overall driving driving reason behind it? Well, I, I think it's a combination of things. I, I I think there are people out there that are wired differently, you know, for lack of better terms, that just don't like to see nails driven in the feet, um, metal against horses' feet. You know, you have some people who just insist, you know, metal against the horse's body is a terrible thing. They don't like it. You can't convince them to like it. It's almost like um, I enlighten it to um, uh, how people are with guns. There are some people that are so anti-gun that if an unloaded gun was sitting on a table in a room, they would feel like the gun could do something bad. with no bullets. They would be uncomfortable. That's just how they are. You don't have to argue with them. You don't have to explain to them or nothing. They're not going to change. That's how they are. And there are people like that about um, nailed-on horseshoes. That's just how they are. They want to own a horse, and they want to be you know, metal-free, shoeless, whatever you want to talk about. And that's how they're going to be, no matter what the AFA does or what I do. I've actually had people come into Cornell with a lame horse. I, I see that the horse has a, a, what I would call a very nice uh, barefoot-style trend, and they we do what uh, veterinarians do, lameness diagnosis, and the horse probably has some type of soft tissue on the bottom of his foot that's been bruised really bad. But there's nothing really coming up that you can put a finger on. And, you know, they have me look at the horse and I say, I, I believe this horse needs shoes because he's generally sole sore. This year, um, the, the, we've had a lot of rain, for instance, and his feet are soft. And before, we maybe had a drought and the feet were much harder so the horse could sustain better. And the people look at you and go, well, we just don't believe in shoes. And they go, what do you mean you don't believe in shoes? I can make this horse comfortable in town. I guarantee it. I'll give you your money back if, if, it, you know, if the horse isn't perfectly rideable. And they say to you, we don't believe in shoes. Didn't you hear what I said? We don't believe in shoes. So what am I going to tell that person? There's nothing I could tell that person. And so that's how they are. And some of it's, you know, people wanting to be natural. Some of it's uh, reading, you know, propaganda, whatever. You know, I'm not against being barefoot. Most horses are not shod. But if a horse needs shoes and the type will work and the horse is telling you he needs shoes and 
uh, if his feet are beat up because of the hard ground or because of fly stomping, and you can't keep boots on him 24 hours a day, um, and you need the horse needs help, and the horse is telling you this, he's not going to transition, or maybe he was okay last year, but he's not going to be okay this year. We had another horse come in. Um, they've ridden him, trail rode him barefoot for years. And at one point, he barefoot, they're on trails with sharp stones. A, a stone gets in there, a very, you know, a gritty piece, and causes an abscess that doesn't get taken care of. And next thing you know, he needs a coffin bone debridement. And you say to them, well, this horse is going to have to wear shoes for a while to protect this foot. They go, well, he never needed them before. <laughs> well, yeah, now he has a hole in his foot, you know, and a rotten coffin bone. But they don't want to hear that. So that's, you know, that's kind of stuff you have no control of, over as a farrier. And so people are going to do that. And unfortunately, horses do suffer. Horses also suffer with poorly put, put on shoes. So, you know, it goes both ways. And unfortunately, the horse is the one that's caught in the middle. That, that's sort of what's the frustrating part. Going back to that sort of that first scenario of the the people who may come into Cornell and, and need some some help for their horse and where you think that the uh, shoe application will, will benefit the horse, but they're adamant about staying barefoot. How do you, how do you handle that situation? Well, I, I talked to the vet. And um, talk to the people. We've stated our case. It's their horse. They can do what they want. I told them what I could do to help. It could be a glue-on shoe. It could be a nail-on shoe. You know, I'll do whatever. You know, we can do almost anything up there. And I just tell them. I give them all their options. And they act like, no, you're not telling me what I want to hear. It doesn't happen often, but it has, it has happened. And they've actually, you know, they've swallowed whatever propaganda is out there and that's how they believe. And so the horse, obviously we can't get permission to, to do what is necessary. Um, they pay their bill and go home and, you know, then they, you know, try and call the, the special barefoot person and, or maybe they buy some more crystals or I don't know what they do, but you know, they, <laughs> whatever it is that they're, you know, believe in, they're going to keep trying. They're not going to listen to the logical, practical way to help this horse. Can you talk a little bit about the work you do at Cornell, you know, and how farriers out there, you know, with uh, the practices in the, the everyday world of how how your work is different? And, you know, it, it's also multifaceted. It's just not the clinical work. Some of the work we do is just like everyday shoeing because it has to be for the students. For instance, tomorrow morning, uh, one of my friends that I play polo with during the summer is bringing three polo horses down. And one of the reasons why I like having some, you know, out, outside polo horses coming in um, uh, with this particular friend knows that I'll let my students work on these horses uh, as much as their capabilities allow them. Because polo shoeing is pretty simple. And these are fairly normal, everyday horses. They stand good. They have decent feet, and the shoes are nothing, you know, special. And so it's something that the students can handle. I like bringing in some of those types of polo horses because, it's, you know, it's great practice for the students. So that's, you know, very normal stuff. But then it goes the other way where you have horses coming in um, that have problems. 
and we get a lot of referral from the local veterinarians. Um, the local horseshoe is just not getting it done uh, as necessary. We have horses that come in from two to three hours away, any direction, north, south, east, and west. That And the people say to me, I can't use this horse the way he's being shod. And um, I can't get anybody to make improvements on what's being done. And so there's more or less trying to, you know, look at what's not right. It's kind of like some of it's like some of the polo horses that were donated that just were not shod with the right shoes or the right trim. And so we get quite a bit of that. And um, those horses come straight to me. And if I need help, uh, diagnostic help, obviously I'm going to, try and get them into the veterinary hospital. But then there are horses, many of which come to the veterinary hospital first with lameness or other problems. And so I'm going to be, that's a component of what we're going to do. I'm part of the team. The, the veterinarians are part of the team. And so whatever lameness diagnosis will be done or of a horse with an injury, you know, I'll be part of what's going on with that. And we'll come up with, you know, some good diagnostics, and then we'll, you know, come up with a plan to help this horse. And, of course, the students get to see that, too, until they get to see some problem-solving and, and diagnostic work, which, you know, is good for them. And uh, we also get to see, this time of year, a lot of angular limb um, deformities. So today we worked on a fall that was windswept behind, and two days old can't stand and so windswept. So we help that horse with some blue and shoes. Yeah, that's the that's variety that constantly comes in. I, I, I think of um, the Forrest Gump movie where he sits there and he says, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that's what it's like being up at the veterinary college. You, you almost never know what's going to come through. It could be something with a hoof laceration. We do a lot of laminitis horses and canker horses. Um, angular limb deformity, general lameness, performance problems. So it just goes on and on and on. And it keeps you on your toes, let's put it that way. So when you're shoeing a normal horse, that's like, okay, time to relax. You know, because you're in the veterinary school situation is that you do have that inter interaction with the vet students as well, at least the ones who who have an interest in, in the foot, in the equine foot. I don't know how how it is throughout the country, if there is a consistency, but at least for Cornell, uh, just so there's some understanding of, you know, because this often comes up with question is the, the amount of uh, uh, hoof and, and lower limb training and insight that vet students receive. What, what sort of instruction do they receive during their time at Cornell? Well, um, that has changed um, and it's changed, somewhat since I've been there, I guess I've pushed for it. Um, the first year class at Cornell, which, you know, is a mixed bag of over 100 students and, and, you know, very few of which are equine specialists, they get a lecture, an over, overall overview lecture. And they are also encouraged, they, they are given time to um, come to the farrier shop and shadow us. And we've had quite a few of them do that, especially after I gave them the lecture. And then um, they have so many other things because, you know, they're, they're small animal, they're exotic, they're, you know, there's production animals and so on. They have so much to do. It's just amazing how much they have to learn. 
And so um, the next instruction that will get to them from me and, and the lameness uh, specialists will be when in their junior and senior year when they are, you know, what they call in the equine track or the equine specialty rotation, which is quite extensive. And then we'll put together a whole bunch of lectures uh, that I have and, and several labs. And um, uh, in the past year, I said that's not enough because, yeah, we're trying to teach them to handle a hook knife, actually know how to sharpen a hook knife, how to trim a foot in a basic way, how to look for an abscess, you know, how to think about it, stuff about, you know, treatments on, on injuries and treatments of hoof diseases. So, you know, that's overall a lecture, but they don't get enough of the practical stuff, you know, in that length of time. So I proposed a a course as part of the specialty, the equine specialty rotation. It's a new course this year called Farrier Skills for Veterinarians. And so that has been brought into the equine specialty rotation as an elective course. And we have these students uh, for two weeks straight. And they have no other interruptions, and they have to do nothing else but be with us at the farrier shop. So that's kind of groundbreaking. And then the other thing we have done is uh, when I mentioned earlier that uh, my friend Doug Bacorn passed away a few years ago, well, Doug's uh, widow, wife, uh, Denise, set up a scholarship. And, and so we give um, free tuition once a year. Um, to somebody applying to farrier school that meets certain requirements, they can apply for that. And the other thing she did was set up what's called a fellowship that veterinary students enrolled at Cornell can take the full 16-week course. We take one a year, and we have a you know a selection process for that. That we select that you know shows that interest that could take the whole farrier course where they can fit it in, and it's usually between their first and second year. We've had several of them do that already. And then this year, right now, we have a veterinary student that her job is not starting until September. She's graduating now. She's actually a doctor. And mm-hmm. she is elected uh, to take the complete farrier course, the 16-week farrier course over the summer with us. So we actually give them quite a lot of op- good opportunities. And then we also, when they're on clinics rotation in the uh, large animal hospital, um, we work with them regularly also in the, in the more practical sense. And they'll assist when we're putting on uh, glue on shoes on folds. They'll, we'll talk about laminitis with real cases and so on and how we're taking care of them. And, and certainly they uh, assist in lameness evaluations. So they're getting more and more from us than they ever have. When you have the students in the elective, what's your goal for for the vet student after they get past those two weeks? I, I want to make sure they can do several things with confidence. Number one, be able to pull shoes properly and effectively. Number two, handle a hook knife properly and effectively. Number three, understand some of the you know the shoeing and trimming principles. So they actually understand, see them done in a practical way, understand the geometric balance stuff, what we're, what our goals are shoeing, what's realistic, what may not be realistic. And um, we also get them making some shoes. 
Um, and and I have them all make their own hook picks, and and I kind of treat them like a barrier student. Um, and of course, and usually when we're you know finishing up the two week rotation, they're wondering, they're saying, "Boy, I wish I could spend another two weeks here." So they really like it. Tug Russo at Iowa State, the farrier at Iowa State, has something similar, and he he calls it his farrier appreciation course. Right, right, and that's what it is too. They really do appreciate a lot more of what a farrier can do and how hard it is and, you know, how the teamwork can work with us. And so um, it's definitely, uh, it's really worthwhile for them. They all, you know, really understand things a lot better when we do that. And you you also see it from the other side about that relationship. So, you know, from your time in practice, out on your own or your time with Cornell, what have you learned of how farriers, you know, can better work with veterinarians or, or avoid misunderstandings with, with their veterinary counterparts? Well, certainly direct communication. Anytime it goes through the owner, it's like that game telephone where, you know, the message gets changed. And so uh, good communication is always, you know, helpful. Um, and, you know, mutual respect for sure. And, then, you know, I mean, that's just common sense. Um, I have not had, you know, before I worked for Cornell, I had a very good relationship with a lot of local vets. Um, you know, I helped them. They helped me and never had a problem with any of them any anyway. And I never gave them any problem. And then people were saying to me, you know, when I was contemplating taking this position, you know, all oh, these veterinarians, they're going to tell you how to show a horse and they're going to do this and do that. You know, I'm there over seven years. I, I guess when is that going to happen? It's never happened. We talk about what's wrong with the horse. We talk about the possibilities of how we're going to do it. And quite often I'm going to, I even say, I'm not exactly, I know what you want to do and or I know what the problem is and I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do till I'm actually trimming this foot. And um, they say, okay, you're in charge. You do what you need to do. And that's that. And then when the horse, um, you know, does well after that, I've done my job, they're happy, and it makes them look good too. So we have no problem at all. And I I think it's really great communication and mutual respect. And if I go back a very long ways, I think about um, early in my career when I didn't know too much of what I was doing, and um, uh, one of my clients that I was shooing had a, a wellness-type vet check, you know, shot uh, appointment with his vet. The vet watched the horse go and basically told the client, well, your horse is moving kind of short behind. And I go like, yeah. you know, so the client's all upset now. Calls me up. Vet says my horse is moving short. And so I'm going like, well, what does he really mean? What does moving short really mean? And then, of course, this client didn't know. And, um, and you know, this vet seemed, you know, the client was very concerned because the vet seemed concerned. He didn't like the way the horse was shod behind. And he could have been right. But so I want to know what can I do different? What, 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 what do you want me to change? And I watched the horse go, and I don't really think he's going that bad. He's not built that good, and he's moving the best he can. And so I finally, you know, found vets that, you know, left, you know, this stuff. And um, 
I approached him and I said, um, I just like you to tell me, you know, what I can do better for this horse and, or what, what do you mean by he's moving short? And his answer was, well, that's your job to figure it out. Now, is that good communication? You know, so, you know, that, that's very discouraging for, um, you know, a young guy, you know, trying to get started and do a good job. But I don't get any of that, you know, happening, you know, with other vets. So this guy maybe just a, was just a sour apple. You had mentioned this a couple of times before, but I'd like you to go a little bit more in depth. One of your longtime roles has been with Mustad. Can you talk about the work you do for them? Well, it's been, a, again, another great opportunity that, you know, came my way. And I, I'm not sure why I deserve all these nice opportunities, but I'll take them. Uh, I, I'm Mustad's um, clinician. I've been with Mustad longer than anybody else other than um, the family at this point. I started that in 1976, and that was, again, through Doug Butler, because Doug Butler had been uh, contacted by some people from Mustad get their fish hook distribution plant was 30 miles north of Ithaca, so they had a base right nearby. And uh, Doug Butler was, you know, fairly famous. And Harold Mowers was, you know, certainly notable. And they wanted to, you know, talk with Harold and Doug about um, why they can't sell nails in this country. And um, Doug Butler asked me to come to that meeting. And I did and met um, several people from that had flown over from Sweden, plus the local plant manager. And we talked a lot about stuff. And they asked if I was interested in coming to visit them up there and talk more about, you know, ways I could help them. And I said, okay. And then I was hired. That was 1976. And I was the first consultant, barrier consultant for Mustad. And so over the years, it's a, that's a kind of a long, that's a whole interview in itself, you know, um, all the, how all this evolved. And so what I basically did was looked at what they, well, what their nails were at the time, their American version was copies of Capewell nails, the city head series, the regular head series and the race nail series. And as I looked at them, I said, you know, these are bad copies. That's the problem. They're not good copies. And so they were like, well, what do we need to do to make them better copies? And so it was a refinement that they had to go through. And so that was my first suggestion. And I also suggested to get involved with, you know, the beginning, this was the American Farriers Association that had already been established. There was clinics and contests that I was going to. And I said, we have to get out there, you know, in the industry, get feedback and, and, and see what needs to be done, what the farriers want, then do it and then see if they like it. Um, that's what we started doing with them, you know, going to schools and clinics and contests and, and the AFA convention. Uh, first one we went to was in 1977 and then um, started touring schools and giving out nails. Well, we hadn't made any real changes yet. And so we were really getting nowhere until we made changes. Until once they decided to commit to um, using a softer wire and refining the nails, then we started making progress. And then um, the concept idea that I had, there was no slim nails for the five city head um, back then. And so I came up with the first slim five city head. 
we call it the five combo. If we, um, my idea was to take their four and a half city head and put a five head on it because that was the standard head, and that's a chooser punch for. So that you know, nice uh, four and a half nail was a slim, nice to drive nail, less hook displacement, and that's what changed everything. And um, you know, Capewell. Uh, copied that at the time, and then Cooper copied that. But those old nails became very popular in the United States. And the refinement and the repackaging of the must-add nails and the five combo was really what, you know, pushed us over the edge in, in gaining market share. And so over the years, I've done other things like that and um, introduce, helped field test and introduce new products. The original glue-on shoes that they and came out with the glue strider shoes. I was brought to uh, a secret meeting, show the um, components to put them together, and um, told, you know, don't tell anybody about this, but what do you think this is going to do to the nail business if this is a glue-on shoe? And I said, uh, it's too complicated, it's too expensive, but I think we should pursue it um, for therapeutic purposes because that's what it's really good for. And I got um, Bernie Chapman and Myron McLean to get involved with this. And of course, you know, you know, that part of the history of two really great clinicians from Mustad and helped develop the, the glue on shoe stuff for therapeutic reasons. And um, so all these things are, you know, stuff I, um, you know, had a hand in pushing them towards their sponsorship to um, major competitions um, was something I asked them to do, um, to, to be out there, to, you know, get the name out there. So I had them develop the, uh, must add specialty forging buckle for the AFA convention. Uh, I also had them start the clinician program that was in the early eighties and I was the first clinician. Um, so that look how that program has gone. So all these things over the years, um, tough stuff and thrust buster. A friend of mine brought those products to me and had me field test them, and I recommended them to Mustad. So, you know, a lot of this stuff that they do now is, is stuff I was able to help them, um, um, you know, bring forth. You've had this really unique vantage point as a, a practitioner, as a clinician, uh, something we haven't talked about, your, your role with having a supply shop earlier. You, you've seen a lot of products come and go, and so many more products enter the, the, the market. In your mind, when you want to analyze a product, what separates the innovation from the fad? Well, that's a good question, and that's one we wrestle with all the time. You know, certainly we want to see innovative products and, uh, you know, things that make our job easier. Um, and in some ways, sometimes that's dumbing down the industry. You know, there was a time you couldn't buy a shoe with a, a clip on it. Now that's pretty standard. You know, you can buy all kinds of clip shoes. And now you have people who, you know, can't make a clip anymore in some cases, but can use clip shoes. So it's always a two-edged sword every time we make something easier. Uh, do we lose some of the skill? Um, and, and you know, what's really tough, the market is, can be... It's not saturated, but at times it is saturated with, there's so many good choices 
and uh, what do actually the consumer want? What works for the consumer? And so different parts of the world, for instance, well, what I've seen when I was in, in Europe, when I went to uh, Mustad's plant in Sweden, and they had this huge warehouse, and that supplies that whole general region with shoes and things, I'm told that the farriers in, in much of Scandinavia will not buy a shoe unless it's front, hind, clipped, and pre-drilled for studs. They said, if you want to be, if you want to sell shoes to the farriers, that's what they want to buy. So, I mean, whether that's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. That's what they want to buy. And um, so I think, you know, in the United States, we have so many different markets. There's so many different types of horses, so many different regions. And that's why there's so many different shoes out there. They're popular for a certain region, a certain type of horse. And then we're trying to make improvements on these shoes to make them better, to make them easier. The, the fads are the things that are going to um, cure a disease with no, um, uh, without any uh, proven, you know, efficacy. Um, that kind of stuff is always, you know, there's no FDA for people who advertise horse products. So no one's going to say, um, Yes, we're taking you to court because you're lying, you know. Um, so they can put anything they want in, adver- in an advertisement. I mean, they don't have to prove it. So, you know, if, if a shoe cure- says on it or a pad cures navicular disease, that's baloney. You know, it may help manage, you know, a lameness, but, you know, it, it can't cure it. <laughs> so that's that's the fad that, you know, you're talking about. and. And, and obviously people are going to try it because they're desperate. They're, they're, the, the advertisement is telling them what they want to hear versus uh, what's going to actually work for their horse. And what's going to work for their horse is somebody who knows how to balance a foot, select the right shoe, fit it, modify it properly, and nail it on right, and that's what's going to help the horse. So, you know, the skill of shoeing needs to be there, the product, you know, the, the fancy horseshoe or the fancy pad, if it's not put on a properly trimmed foot and shaped right and used appropriately, the product is not going to help the horse. I'll tell you a quick little story, you know, that really emphasizes this or proves the point. Um, you know, when Bernie Chapman, you know, started teaching us how to use heart bars and do a toe resection, and it really was a big change in the industry for how we treat laminitis horses. In fact, I've said many times, Bernie and what he's taught farriers has helped horses more than anything else that I know of, you know, to relieve pain on, you know, laminitis suffering horses. And I still feel that way. And so, you know, the heart bar shoe became, you know, well-known and at first you had to fabricate them. And, um, and then the horseshoe manufacturers started coming up with different versions. And when I had my supply business, you know, we stocked them and because we knew there were going to be demand. And then, you know, typically some guy would walk in and say, the vet says uh, the horse needs a heart bar. You got any? Then I'd show him and I'd try to talk to him about, you know, how to put them on, but I know he's not listening. And he's going to put that heart bar on and trim that foot exactly the same way he was putting on a generic horseshoe. And then when I see the guy the next time, how that heart bar works, 
And he's like, oh, uh, oh, it didn't help that horse. Those hard parts don't work. So he didn't trim the foot right. He didn't put the right kind of pressure. You know, he didn't use any skill and knowledge. He just thought, you know, if I put a heart bar on, it's supposed to make this go away. And you might as well throw the heart bar in his feed bucket for all the good it's going to do if you think it's like that. So, you know, that's that's the kind of problem you have with, you know, this kind of stuff. You know, there's, there is skill involved, even though maybe some some of the work has been done for you. And so having that knowledge and skill on how to apply these things, there's that's not going to change. You know, even though we now can scan a foot with a scanner, feed the information into a computer, and the computer could act could actually print whatever shoe you program the computer to, that can be done now. That's been proven it could be done. It doesn't mean the computer is going to trim the foot and or apply the shoe. And so even though maybe we can come up with the, the right shoe, we still have to know how to, you know, put it all together. Yeah, that's why the basics will never be obsolete. Right. Basics haven't changed hardly. Good basics is good shoeing. In this interview, you've talked about shoeing back in the 70s and you're still getting under horses today. What do you credit for your longevity and your ability to still get under horses? You know, you, you learn from your mistakes more than anything. And um, early on when I, you know, committed that I was going to be, you know, a farrier for a living and I'm working at this and I... Um, started having back problems. I mean, so much that I was uncomfortable, like, you know, com- uncomfortable, uh, you know, trying to sleep or, you know, like there was definitely something going on. So I made an appointment with an orthopedist and he uh, radiographed my spine and said to me, well, son, you're in the wrong profession and you have too much curvature of your spine. And, you know, this is going to make you hurt and uh, it's going to cripple you. I said, well, um, can you give me another answer? You know, I'm like the horse owner that doesn't want to hear what the veterinarian's telling them about their lame horse. And I'm in denial of this. And he says, well, I'm going to show you some um, um, exercises and stretches that I tell everybody, and um, uh, but nobody ever does them. Uh, and so eventually they have to have their back operated on anyway. And I said, I'll do them, show me. And of course I did them and I had an appointment a month later. He re-radiographed my spine. The curvature was gone and um, I was so much healthier. I didn't hurt anymore. And I I actually try to show these stretches and exercises whenever I do a clinic um, to, you know, help barriers like it's helped me. So I have done these types of stretching and exercises and probably not as much as I should really, but, you know, that's what, um, I always make the comment, I can buy a new anvil, I could buy a new truck, but I cannot buy a new body. So you got to take care of your body. And I try to swim during the winter, especially. I try to work out um, when I can. Um, but and again, quite often don't get as much as I'd like to do. Um, but you got to take care of yourself. And you got to undo the things that the horses do to you. And, um, and certainly, you know, not being tall and being, you know, built heavily muscled. I had two students in the last group that were like six, two and six, three, and they were having trouble getting under horses. 
and I'm, you know, I'm laughing at them because I'm, I'm a walking foot stand. <laughs> so, you know, I fit under there just fine. And so, you know, obviously certain genetic component, you know, just like I look for the right build on a polo horse, I'm the right build for a farrier. So that's got to be helpful too. But you combine that with, you know, doing some stretching and exercises and stuff. Um, you know, that's, and, and, um, and I've been busted up plenty, uh, by horses chewing over the years or especially early on and certainly playing polo. In fact, I've probably been hurt more playing polo than I have, um, uh, been from chewing horses. So, you know, you just find a way to keep going and deal with these things. No one has ever beaten father time and no one ever will, but farriers are unique or a lot of farriers are unique and I'll count you among these. The older they get, the more they want to learn. They're not interested in re retiring. They're interested in learning more about the horse, and and they just want to keep working. The only thing that stops them is father time. Yeah, I mean, that's because we're having so much fun, I think. Yeah. And and there's a pride that goes along with being able to do this job well and um, and, and knowing that you know, there's not too many other people that can do it. And, you know, there's, it's really something special. Unfortunately, it takes a lifetime to really get a handle on it. By about the time you get things somewhat figured out, your time is over. <laughs> you know, I feel blessed that I was able to get exposed to it. And, and it really probably, you know, as I look as I look backwards on, you know, the timeline of my career, it all seems logical, like where I am now. But it really... I had no idea where I would be at the beginning of this. I never thought that I could attain the level that I, you know, have in the place I've, you know, all the things I've done. You know, that was not in my, you know, thinking. And, and I don't think it was because of lack of confidence. I just, I just didn't, couldn't imagine it. And, um, but, you know, as I look back, it's sort of like a logical sequence that has gotten me to where I am. But, you didn't. You don't see that on the other end. So it's been. It's been magical. I think it's. It's a bit, You know, to me, it's. Um, you know, I'm going to be 68. I'm still healthy. I don't hurt. I enjoy what I do. Uh, I'm having a good time. So, like, uh, it, to me, I, it's like I got no complaints. You know, other than the weather or something like that. So you know, it's. Um, I really, you know, feel very privileged tell you the truth and, and, and happy. I'd like to thank Steve Krause for spending the time with us and sharing his insight. I'd also like to thank Mustad for sponsoring this podcast episode. Next week, we'll chat with Iowa Farrier Ray Legal. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please post them to the episode page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. And until next week, thank you for listening.